0: We're all familiar with this. We're all familiar with the policies that have been put in place since World War II in Nuremberg, that humans, human beings, have the right to an informed consent. And what was done here in a haphazard way, um, under the justification ostensibly that we had to, um, we had to, essentially reject. Um, Thrown into the rubbish, norms that had been developed over decades, both for assuring vaccine safety and for assuring informed consent of patients, was all all had to be jettisoned on short notice because of the threat of a 3.4 percent case fatality rate and the need to move a potential countermeasure forward
1: without uh, the due process
0: that normally would take place. That's what transpired. And I can tell you, 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 you know, I'm, I'm labeled as uh, far right and all the pejoratives that we're all so familiar with, including being a conspiracy theorist. But all I am is a physician and scientist who happened to have had a role in the genesis of this technology when I was a young man uh, back in 1987 to 1990. I'm very, very familiar with the technology. Worked as an academic to try to advance it until I determined that I could not overcome the toxicity associated with it and abandoned it for other technology platforms, which I also developed. Um, But in this case, what what I have objected to is that as a physician and scientist who is well-trained in clinical research and regulatory affairs, that we have decimated my, my discipline. We have rejected the knowledge that myself has been, have contributed to and all of my peers and colleagues over decades about how one should do this, how one should act, what steps one should take in order to ensure that we have safe and effective products for humans. It's that simple. And furthermore, that we have rejected the norms that have been developed since World War II to respect human dignity, to ensure that human beings are treated as, as humans. They are, their, their autonomy, their sovereignty is respected, that they are provided with informed consent. Instead of informed consent about the truth of these products and their developmental state, their immature developmental state, we were given a series of lies. Those lies included that these products were safe and effective, or, Without actually qualifying what safe and effective was. You'll recall safe and effective was repeated again and again and again without stating what that meant. Okay? That's a neurolinguistic programming. That's psychological operations. That's propaganda.
1: Good evening. Happy New Year and welcome to the first 2024 edition of the FLCCC Weekly Update. I'm Betsy Ashton, creative director of this alliance of medical professionals and their supporters and I am very happy to be back with you after making a quick recovery from COVID that messed up my holidays all due to the fact that I forgot to take my ivermectin, you know, my medical, uh, my FLCCC prevention protocol with me when I went to a big pre-Christmas party up in New York City, and boy, I won't do that again, I can assure you, but our doctor's early treatment protocol knocked it right out of me and my husband works like a charm. So thank you, Pierre Corey and Paul Merrick and Keith Berkowitz and all the FLCCC doctors who constantly share notes and update the protocols to make sure that they deal with the latest exciting new variant and are truly safe and effective for patients young and even not so young. Well, Now then, about the video that you just saw of Dr. Robert Malone speaking to members of the UK Parliament in London recently, as you heard, he's a scientist who knows better than most why governments everywhere should have questioned big time the safety as well as the efficacy of the so-called mRNA vaccines that they pushed on their citizens as COVID fighters um, while blocking. Good doctors from prescribing and sick patients from obtaining time-tested, FDA-approved medicines that wipe out the disease. Was that smart? Was it benefiting public health? Where was the concern for known side effects to those shots? Interesting news today. Dr. Joseph Ladapo, the Harvard-trained MD and PhD who is Surgeon General of the state of Florida, called today for a halt to the use of the mRNA vaccines based on dangerous impurities found in them. Where's the FDA on that? <clears throat> on the flaws in those shots and the sales pitch for them and the lack of true informed consent to anybody who was forced to get them? We have the best doctors here tonight to dig into all of this. We have Pierre Corey and Paul Merrick and Robert Malone himself. As usual, I'll return with your questions for these doctors. And two top nurses are already online to answer questions that you type into Q&A. But let's get this conversation started. Happy New Year, doctors. Take it away. (laughs) Thanks,
2: Betsy. Hey, Um, Uh, Robert, I just want to interject one thing before we want to talk, because you know that Paul and I have the the utmost admiration for you, your career, your work. But can we just talk about the fact what Joe Lattipo did did today? I mean, you're talking about a state surgeon general who's calling out the FDA to stop the shots. Has that ever happened historically? Have you ever heard of a, a, a state Leading health agency official calling out the federal government for what they're doing.
0: No, and uh, this this has uh, been a while coming. Uh, Pierre, you probably have read on my Substack the various essays that I've put out about the adulteration, and in one of them, I had made the case that a attorney general for a state would have the right to withdraw the shots should the or I should say the medical product should the FDA fail to act on the adulteration problem and uh Joe and I have had active conversations about this since that time he reads the substack yep and uh and he he uh, alerted me uh, in the course of this correspondence with uh, the FDA, um, eventually Peter Marks with his reply and asked me to respond from my standpoint with my knowledge base to the various assertions that Peter Marks had made in response to Joe's uh, letter to him. Essentially the, the train is that Joe felt it, it was Joe and, and the people around him. He, he's not at liberty to just act unilaterally on these kinds of things, and so they felt that it was necessary to give the FDA all due opportunity to respond to the criticism. And what came back from Peter Marks was uh, gaslighting. Uh, it's it's it, it either reveals that Peter Marks doesn't uh, isn't qualified to play this role in regulating these products, because he doesn't even understand the first thing about transfection, about the use of this technology for delivering DNA, which is routinely used in laboratories all across the world. Uh, and, And he made a series of assertions that were patently false, easily demonstrated to be false, and substituted irrelevant data and claims and sent that back to Joe as if Joe is an idiot. And uh, uh, Joe was understandably upset by that really lack of respect on the part of the FDA uh, and uh, called me and asked me to really respond whether or not he was overreacting. And so I dug into the letter and my impression was that it was even worse than joe had thought it was because peter was peter was referring to uh genotoxicity studies using rat micronuclei for instance which have no relevance to insertional mutagenesis with dna fragments uh, he just made a bunch of nonsensical statements again they, it's hard to uh come to any conclusion other than peter marks is uh Incompetent, not
2: wait, Robert. Robert, I like that you articulated the response to Joe's professional, well articulated request for more information and investigation. But what I found um, unprecedented and really that I admire is Joe's response, which is then fine, I'm calling the stoppage of these shots. So,
0: so that. Uh, I spoke to Joe today. Uh, that's uh, just a first step, let's say. Okay. So he's being, yep. as, you, as you know, you know, Joe, Joe is a very measured, balanced person. He's very methodical. He's very calm. He never gets upset about anything. And he's, he's walking through landmines right now, in state of Florida. Uh, and so he came out with this, it it turns out that uh, there's a lot of complexity in getting consensus within the state to do anything, as you might imagine. And he had hoped to have a statement out uh, a few weeks ago, uh, right after the letter came back and my response was written. But uh, there was just too many hurdles. So he put this out as an interim response. And we'll see how it flies. But yes, it was very measured and balanced. Uh, And and, uh, uh, I would have liked, I'll just speak for myself. I would have preferred that he had been able to work with the attorney general in the state and declare that the products were, uh, did not meet the criteria for lack of adulteration and uh had not met the criteria for demonstrating safety uh specifically regarding the dna fragment contamination he did make that statement in today's letter uh and he did summarize his position but he's not he's not in the position where he can act unilaterally to have the state uh take action to withdraw the products i know there's a lot of chatter Uh, Why didn't Joe, you know, take the next step? Why didn't he do this, that, or the other thing? People, uh, you know, I've I've been amazed all the way through this that there are various parties that are uh, quite willing to exploit this uh, and uh, throw spitballs at people uh, because they didn't say this or they didn't acknowledge that or whatever. What these people don't seem to recognize is some of us have to live in the real world. And uh, the real world involves political compromise and uh, methodical steps and acting responsibly in a world in which we're not typically in the majority, those of us who have the beliefs that you and I share. And uh, I'm, I'm of the opinion that it's better uh, to move uh, responsibly, appropriately, stepwise to get to win. That's what I want. I want these things off the market. They're not safe and they're not effective. And I've written that quite forcefully in in another essay right before uh, New Year's. Uh, But uh, just because we want it, uh, jumping up and down and and, uh, banging the table and and saying uh, all these uh, things like there's no virus, uh, there was no pandemic, this is all a, a DOD psyops. The FDA doesn't have any role in regulating these products. It just doesn't get us to win. Uh, yep. So Joe is being very responsible as always. And no,
2: and, and um, Robert, I, I agree with what you're saying, but I, I just wanted to call out the unprecedented nature of what he did. Are you talking about a state surgeon general, one single state in a country of 50 states which is literally the the especially the COVID response has been directed from a federal level, from a top-down approach. And there's been very few states who've independently looked at the data and tried to see what the right way to go. And Florida stands out, and especially Joe Latipo. And I, I don't know, maybe maybe it's just me just as a fighter or whatever, but I, I just thought what Joe today was Joe did today was uh, unprecedented, bold, and historic. And w- yeah. whether it's effectual. And and what the other th- steps that need to happen, it, I think you're completely right. Uh, it's not so easy, but I, I do think it it, it was. Um, yeah, the problem is expect- that he's
3: pretty mu- he's pretty much alone. You know, it yep. would be much more effective, and hopefully that may happen that you know other surgeon
2: generals can follow his lead. Well, Paul, that's what I like. Uh, Robert, do you know this from talking to Joe? Like, how come Joe was alone today? Why wasn't like Nebraska, North Dakota, Georgia, you know, like why weren't there other folks with
1: him?
0: Uh I think that I don't I don't know the answer to that. And I didn't have any interface with Joe regarding whether he was trying to build a multi-state coalition. Uh, I I Obviously, Joe has acted uh, with courage and fortitude all the way through this. People often forget that he was one of the original signatories of the Great Barrington Declaration and has been at the forefront of the resistance, really, uh, uh, since he was, I think, at UCLA, as I recall, as a full professor uh, and then was recruited from there by uh, Ron DeSantis to become his attorney general. So. Uh, but, I'm sorry, Surgeon General. But but Joe is embedded in a healthcare system uh within the state of Florida that is uh not uh not aligned with him. Uh he has a number of people surrounding him that uh would like to see him go, uh both mm-hmm. in academe uh, at the University of Florida uh and um uh, within that state structure. So he has to move very cautiously because yeah. he's just surrounded by uh, individuals that would like to take him out. Uh, and why he hasn't been able to build a coalition, uh, you know, one, one state that seems like it should be a natural ally is Texas. And uh, particularly with the lawsuit now against Pfizer, and uh, i think i think we just have to watch and wait right now to see how this how this goes that it sounds, there's 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 no data that i'm aware of here tell me if i'm wrong i haven't seen any data on the effectiveness of these current quote boosters against the current circulating
2: strains i i just haven't seen that data no, I, I assume there's there's near nil, <laughs> but you're yeah. right. I don't have data on that. But but let, let me change gears, Robert. Um, you know, Paul and I were just uh we we're really excited to have you on. We 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 really want to talk about you. Um you have been um maybe it's overstating to say a mentor to us, but uh oh, and I have worked <laughs> we, we've worked together. I, I, I would just say audience. Yeah, a colleague. Uh a colleague. Colleague colleague slash mentor. We all mentor each other. Do, have I ever mentored you? Don't answer that question.
0: Um, <laughs> no, you have. To be truthful, both of you have provided me with advice at various points. Yeah. Time. Sometimes your advice is a little saltier than Paul's, uh, but uh, you don't. It's hey, Robert, so, you know, you have
3: an interesting career. You know, maybe you yeah. can tell us, you know, before COVID, because there was a time of the world before COVID, believe it or not, you know what what you were doing in your um, interest in repurposed drugs and and because uh, you did have a uh, you know, some interesting stuff you were doing before COVID.
2: Yeah, Robert, well, t- thanks, t- well. t- I-, I think one of the things that we want to do tonight is we want to hear. Uh, uh, I know of your career a little bit more than most. Um, not not the, the you know the RNA transfection and all the stuff you did for the vaccines. But to to us, especially me and Paul, it's what you've done in the last 10 years, like with with your consulting firm, with Jill, and and all of your interests and efforts in in identifying repurposed drugs for novel emerging public health emergencies. So can you tell us about that?
0: Uh, So thanks, Pierre. This is like uh, outbreak number six for me. Uh, I really started my career at the very at, in a laboratory that was right at the forefront of the uh it was then called LAV lymphadenopathy virus uh, or HTLV3 depending on whether you were French or American we now call it AIDS and HIV mm-hmm. uh that's where I really first got exposed to vaccinology and to the dynamics of uh kind of outbreak politics. And I've been embedded in that through much of my career. I guess it, I'm a little bit of an outbreak junkie. It, it is uh, a real rush uh, in so many ways when an outbreak happens and you have an opportunity to potentially make a positive impact. What, you, what you're referring to is uh, part of the trajectory of my career. Uh, As as I uh, moved from being an academic and discovery research scientist to uh, the the epiphany that uh, writing papers uh, and being a high-profile academic thought leader doesn't really do any good for patients. It doesn't get you to Um, having a positive impact, or getting a licensed product to market it. That's a whole different skill set than the discovery research part. And so, as I realized that, that the world really didn't need more academic thought leaders, it has plenty of those. And what it needed was people that could bridge the gap, Uh, they call it the valley of death, between the discovery part and this very highly regulated aspect of advanced drug development through licensure, I realized there weren't really many people, hardly any, that had had a foot in cutting edge modern biotechnology and also understood advanced development, clinical research, regulatory affairs, project management, contracts and grants, et cetera. So I intentionally became that person. It took me about a decade to learn the skill sets. And and I took, that's why I took the fellowship at Harvard in global clinical research, because I wanted to broaden our consulting activities uh, to offshore more than just domestic US. And I wanted to fill in the gaps in my understanding in epidemiology and biostatistics, et cetera. And so I became, I became that. I've written many INDs. I've managed many uh, clinical trials, phase one through phase three, usually more phase one and phase two, because I'm kind of a specialist, as I said, in uh, um, bridging the valley of death between discovery and advanced product development. Mm -hmm. And so that became the focus of my consulting practice. And one of the things that I'm very good at, in case you don't follow my substack, is I write. Uh, I can write pretty quickly and compelling, uh, convincing uh, essays, which makes me a really good granted contract writer. And uh, that became one of the mainstays of our consulting business was, and I say our, Jill and I have always worked together. We worked in the laboratory at the bench together. Uh, we've we've worked um, together our whole lives. Uh, so. I became a specialist in grants and contracts, and in particular, people within the government started to turn to me, uh, really both in biotech and on the government side. I, I had made the uh, assessment that one of the key problems in government contracting is that the big contractors usually don't have the best technology, but they have the best capabilities to write these large grants and contracts and get them won. Mm. And I'm talking about tens of millions to hundreds of millions. I probably captured about 500 million for my clients during COVID. uh, And I have a lifetime win in the multiple billions. So that's kind of what I do is, and I became known for it is, People from both sides of the fence, private sector and the government, uh, learned that they could come to me and present me with problems or technology or potential solutions, and I could build teams, assemble teams to solve complicated challenges. And one of those uh, has to do with repurposing drugs. And uh, there's some things that are going to come out, Pierre, over the next three or four months. Uh, that will address uh, some of these critics that kind of see me as a Johnny come lately in objecting to the corruption within the government and the CDC and the vaccine enterprise that I'm not at liberty to talk about because it was contract expert witness work for a very large law firm in a very, very large uh, whistleblower case. But that um, expert witness report which I've been told is really the definitive report on the corruption of the CDC and in big uh, pharma in the vaccine space will become public
2: in the next few months. Right. But you, you can't talk about that now, but Robert, I, um, if you give me the Liberty, you know, I want to sort of explain to our listeners how I understand you and your more recent work, you, your career has been storied in decades long, but You know, for me and Paul, we've been most interested and most appreciative of your work around bringing repurposed drugs. So let's let's talk about drug. Hold on, let me just say the last thing. Your company with Jill in the last ten years, like the way you explained it to me in, in in our previous conversation, is that you were expert at marrying the needs of government for research and or technology with the private sector in meeting those demands. And you yeah. were like, I don't want to say a middleman, but you were very good at sort of solving science technology questions in medicine, in in bringing, in, in bringing those that had the, the, the resources and those that had the demands. Is that a fair description of what you were really good at?
0: Yeah, Mary Holland once told me that there were people like this in the former Soviet Union as it was collapsing when the bureaucracy became so bad. There were people that kind of specialized in making things work despite the the problems with the system. And in a way, I became one of those people, but on the United States, Uh, there's a whole lot of complexity in government contracting and all of this system stuff that has to go into it to pull together uh, a team and, and win a very large bid. Uh, so in the, what the, the path really here uh, goes through the original outbreak in Zika, when there was chaos worldwide. People didn't understand what was happening. We had uh, this microcephaly problem in Pernambuco province in uh, Brazil. Yep. And uh, the genesis of that was really unclear. And I I because anybody that works in this space has uh, develops contacts with the intelligence community uh, and uh, many government specialists uh you know they're not everybody's deep state. Most people are just you know trying to pay their bills and work up the, the ladder in the government. Uh, and I was one of those people that had, because of this career, had a wide range of contacts. And uh, when I was alerted about Zika, which was very early on, uh, there was chaos in the government and in the intelligence community about what was going on here, how this thing suddenly popped out of the out of the blue, uh, because Zika had had circulated previously in the South Pacific. To a limited extent and had not had this kind of problem uh, so uh, there was a lot of fear around it and frankly i was afraid for my children who didn't have i didn't have grandchildren at the time and i was afraid uh, as i learned about the mosquito-borne transmission of what it might do to reproductive health uh, through much of the south uh, in anywhere where there's the Aedes aegypti mosquito, in you know it really reaches up fairly far along the coast here in the United States. We have Aedes here in Virginia. So uh, motivated by all this, I dug into it and uh, produced one of the first, perhaps the first, definitive threat assessment uh, in. Uh, this is a process that the government typically goes through when they first encounter something like this. They do a threat assessment. And usually these days it's it's better developed within the intelligence community. But back then uh, the IC had uh, poor capabilities as it relate to infectious disease. So I worked with various people and pulled together a, a manuscript that was published in PLOS uh, that that really was the first rigorous analysis of what this thing looked like and what the treatment options were, what the potential countermeasures were. And in that, I came to the conclusion that the timeline for vaccine development for a safe and effective vaccine was too long. And the only option to be able to mitigate the risk was to repurpose drugs. And so that's the path I launched on, in addition to publishing further papers, analyzing the sequence and the uh, progression of Zika as it moved from the South Pacific into Brazil, and then, and then through North America, et cetera. So there's a series of, I think, four papers that were published during that timeframe. Uh, but what was most important is we launched a company called Mintogen that was, uh, intended to exploit uh, terms and conditions that existed at the FDA that they would give you a voucher if you came up with a licensed product for uh, a um, identified threat agent um, designated threat agent and Zika was one of those. So what these vouchers would do this was a policy that the FDA put in in order to try to incentivize business to address a rare, diseases and conditions that were otherwise economically viable as targets. And,
2: and so, who's we, Robert? Is that you and Jill?
0: Uh it was a, a number of individuals. Uh one was another consultant. I really don't want to name names. Uh okay. but uh um so I'll get into that in a minute. So uh we sent up set up a company designed to meet the criteria for these vouchers, which would, they were marketable. They're typically worth about $20 million once you achieved one. And what it what it would do is give big pharma the ability to bypass the normal regulatory queue. And so if you held one of these vouchers, you would go to the front of the line with your product, which would save time. And in product development for these big uh, companies' time is money because it's a uh, patent expiry. Uh, the expiration timeline for patents costs them money. And so that's why they would pay, you know, $20, 40000000 million for one of these vouchers. And what we did was set up a working relationship with a high throughput screening laboratory at USAMRID, uh, the US Army Medical Research. Uh, um, facility in Fort Detrick, we were living uh, in uh, the, the by Point of Rocks for anybody that knows that area Had a farm. And uh, so Fort Detrick was nearby and I had contacts from when I was at Dyneport Vaccine Company with leaders at Fort Detrick. And so uh, Detrick had set up had basically recruited one of the leaders in high throughput screening using laser confocal microscopy. So this is deep, highly technical work uh, where one is able to use cell lines in a very controlled way and uh, viruses, various types of virus isolates that infect those different cell lines. It's very difficult to control this kind of a system. Cells have to be growing at the right rate, et cetera. And laser confocal microscopy is a technique that allows very precise uh, microscopic identification down to the single cell layer, uh, which used together with fluorescence allows you to identify whether a given cell is infected uh, and even get some signal about how infected it is. And so you can take drugs and apply them to these Monolayers of cultured cells, or you could infect them first and then add the drug, and identify uh, in a in a very high density multi well environment through these this scanning technique. It's kind of a robotic system. You can identify whether or not that drug is active in reducing the replication of that particular virus on that cell line. And so this is one of the leading techniques that pharma has used historically to ask questions about whether or not a category of drugs or a specific drug is active against a specific virus. And this group at at Fort Detrick had assembled this system that was essentially commercial grade. Now what happened was that Merck and others were actually using the system. So we had to kind of get in the cracks in between big pharma to get our drugs tested, but uh, we were able to. Wait, do Robert,
2: that. I'm sorry to interrupt, but Fort Detrick had this technology, right? So it had the ability to look at a cellular level. You can infect a cell, you can apply a drug, you can see its efficacy and stop our replication. Why are you bringing in pharma right now? Oh, it's not me. No, no, uh, no. Wait, why, why? How is pharma involved in this? This is Fort Detrick. This is government. Uh, technology
0: no so these are public-private partnership arrangements
2: ah yes public-private yes of course
0: uh so uh and and dietrich like everybody else in the government is always scratching and clawing for more capital more resources yeah and so uh so there aren't very many of these uh high throughput laser confocal microscopy shops in the world what ended up with the dietrich shop is the lead scientist had actually been recruited from an even larger facility in south korea uh and uh then she set up this uh, operation a little bit on a shoestring at dietrich and then uh our effort in part collapsed when she got recruited to Merck, who then set ah. up their own facility. Uh, so, so that's, that's the way this goes. And yep. what was lovely with what we were able to do for in the brief, uh, period of about a year and a half, two years is, uh, there are uh, a variety of chemical supply houses. Toronto research chemicals is my favorite. Sigma is one that everybody knows about, but Toronto Research uh, actually provides better compounds and a richer library. And so what I was able to do was to investigate and identify potential candidate uh, pharmaceuticals within a category, within a drug class, order them, and have them tested very efficiently against uh, really a wide range of viruses, not just Zika, on a wide range of cell lines, and then uh, gather those data. And there's there's fundamental cutoff thresholds for uh, some of these parameters having to do with the toxicity of the drug versus its effectiveness. You want a a multi-log ratio there. Uh, And so we've applied the statistics, et cetera, because none of these, you know, you titrate it in a series of wells, you get a response curve, et cetera. It's really high science. Uh, And um, then once you have identified a candidate within a drug category, then you can branch out if you have a supplier like Toronto Research to related compounds and see whether or not they have activity. So this is what we did is, is we ended up screening hundreds of compounds. And a number of those did have anti-Zika activity, also anti-HIV activity, uh, and activity against a number of other viruses, including yellow fever.
2: Yeah. So Robert, can you give us some top line stuff? Because I don't want to get too granular with our audience, but you know, you, you've kind of gone over some of the the processes, the techniques, some of the technology that you use to assess the efficacy and toxicity. What were some of the the things that you guys discovered through this process in dealing with different pathogens?
0: So it it's uh, as you guys uh, discovered independently in your own hands, uh, a lot of these anti-malarials have uh, antiviral activity. Uh, yep. And of course, ivermectin, uh, what's interesting about ivermectin in particular is that it uh, it binds to a key catalytic pocket in a enzyme encoded by the yellow fever virus. And the binding isn't isn't perfect, but it's pretty darn good uh, in terms of its affinity. And uh, this has to do with biochemical calculations of on-off rate and that kind of stuff. And so uh, ivermectin did show significant activity in cell cultures against yellow fever and against a number of other viruses. So did hydroxychloroquine, so did mefloquine, uh, and a number of other antivirals, I'm sorry, anti-malarials, uh, as well as many other compounds. Uh, and uh, So we were able to identify about 20 different compounds that looked like they had good uh, ratios in terms of their effectiveness uh, to their toxicity. And then what became really exciting was that using this system, we were able to take the next step and build uh, grids where we could test combinations of drugs up to three different drugs. When we started, when we started doing that, we started getting down to multi multi log kill. And that's, wow. that's really what you need. So I've never seen a system since then or before that will really allow you at a bench level to get solid numbers in, in uh characterization of the technical term is response surfaces. Uh, Because these drugs interact at different concentrations, and so what you end up with is a a three-dimensional surface map of the effects of the drugs in combination at different concentrations against a virus, and this allows you to choose uh, potential uh, um, mixtures of drugs at different ratios. Well, I
2: got—I got to tell you, Robert, that stuff you're talking to me and Paul like. You're, you're doing on a very detailed data-driven analytical level. I mean, we all know this, that combinations of therapies, synergistic mechanisms are most effective. And so Paul and I, we've always favored, you know, combination protocols, and you're literally able to test them and change, yeah. you know, test different combinations to see how effective they are at, at, at a yes. Yeah, really- so that,
0: that was, that was that project. And, uh, um, uh, precisely. Remember, I cut my teeth on AIDS, yep. and so very, very aware of uh, drug drug interactions and the need for multi drug therapy. You can't you can't shut down HIV replication with a single agent. All you do is select for resistant viruses. Yep. Uh, and they will escape. You have to have this multi log kill, often ten to the ninth. Uh, so you you have to be able to really wipe out the virus by having overlapping activity of different agents. And you know that clinically, yes, this allowed you to go at it. And then, uh, so that project as Zika petered out, uh, we filed a series of patents on many of these agents uh, as patent disclosures. I wrote patent after patent after patent. And unfortunately, what we discovered was despite all the happy talk from the venture philanthropists, there was absolutely no interest in funding drug repurposing. Hmm. Though we had a strategy that would allow you to get patents for the uh, use, these are use patents, you know, using these agents or these combinations for treating uh, disease X or virus Y, but just absolutely no interest in the investment community to capitalize a firm that would do this uh, despite the FDA's incentive program. I haven't even heard it about anybody pursuing those vouchers anymore. It's pretty much a failed uh, strategy. And so uh, we had launched this company, but uh, it went bankrupt. There was no way we could maintain operations despite the patents and despite all the work that we'd done. Uh, and so that that was kind of a uh, lesson learned. That's why when we went into uh, COVID, uh, I made the decision and those around me that I brought together to respond to the COVID threat with drug repurposing efforts all agreed that we would not seek patent protection for anything that we did. So yeah. all, all the discovery work was done um, uh, as as open, uh, with with no patenting intentionally so that it would be publicly available.
2: It just uh, publicly available knowledge that we could act on. And so I, I want to do one thing because um, I want to go to questions. I want to allow people to ask you questions, Robert. But I, I just want to make uh, just take one minute to just talk about our history together. Um, uh, as many of you who are listening right now, you know, the FLCC and me and Paul, you know, We've been trying to put together uh, protocols since the beginning. Uh, we investigated a lot of different therapeutic um, options, and and I really Paul led this work. And when it came to um, ivermectin, you know, Paul always had it as as an option because it seemed like it had some mechanisms. And when we f- first started to see, and I really, Paul saw the signal on the the first, we we just started to see these signals from trials from around the world showing these incredible impacts. And when Paul first brought forth the data, I was right behind Paul. I started to do all the work on amassing all the emerging data. And we had this review paper, which showed this incredible efficacy of ivermectin. And I didn't know where to publish And I heard through the grapevine that there was this guy, turns out his name was Robert Malone, and he was the special editor of an issue with Frontiers in Pharmacology, which wanted to look at repurposed drugs, because Robert, that was your field, your expertise, what you worked in for 10 years, and you knew to respond to a rapidly emerging uh, pandemic of a viral illness, we needed to find available drugs to work. And I think if, if I remember correctly, Robert, the title of the issue was The Use of Available Drugs Against COVID. Is that correct?
0: That sounds right. I've kind of blocked it out of my mind because that's <laughs> such an ugly, <laughs> ugly outcome. Because we, spent- we, <laughs> we we all have PTSD from it. But, yeah. but, but, but
2: Robert I, I, I-, I
0: sent I spent months together with three other colleagues, yep. uh uh mostly Europeans, span from Spain. Uh, in getting the formal approval for that special volume. Because as you recall, nobody could publish anything on drug repurposing. And, and I had and, and, I had know. made the threat assessment at the beginning of of the SARS-CoV-2 outbreak that once again, a safe and effective vaccine was going to take too long. And our only real option was drug repurposing.
2: And, and, and I, I just want to champion you for that. And, and when I heard of your work and this issue... You know, Paul and I talked about it, and I said this really is where we need to publish it. This is an issue specifically directed at COVID. They want to know the evidence for available drugs. We had the evidence for ivermectin, and and Paul and I wrote the paper with our colleagues. We submitted to you. You were so gracious. You you took you know you chose top line. Well,
0: you, you you more than submitted it to me. I I I actively solicited it from you. I had seen your your uh, kind of lay version of this. And uh, the team I was working with at that point was already funded. Uh, I I got the money appropriated for drug repurposing using um, some other systems, both the high throughput robotic screening, like I was talking about, and also uh, computational chemistry. So this is computer screening of drugs. And uh, we, my team had become convinced that ivermectin uh, had a potential role in addition to the agent that we'd initially championed, which was famotidine. Uh, that's
2: true. And, and actually, but that, the, the famotidine and ivermectin, that has the same story. What I want to tell is that, you know, and Paul had identified ivermectin. Anyway, we came to you with a paper, we went through peer review, and and, and this is where really our lives change. And Robert, as, as experienced and as deep as you've been in research and in, in basic uh, science research and in drug development and identification, reper- I mean, you were far and away an expert beyond me and Paul, but I do think that, Robert, is it fair to say that you and I both learned lessons and that we really... I I I, discovered-
0: I I had I was blown away by what happened. Yeah. After yeah. after Paul and Pierre and, and their colleagues, there's about eight different authors on that. Uh yep. Got that submitted. I pulled together a top drawer team of very seasoned reviewers from leaders from the FDA uh, and uh, from a DoD contractor. And uh, from a leading hospital, a, a uh, intensivist from a leading hospital in New York, yep. Uh, yep. and uh, and they weren't light on you. Uh, no, you, you went through multiple rounds of peer review, uh, <laughs> and and it was quite rigorous. And you had to make a lot of different edits and modifications. And we finally got it through, got it approved. You paid, and, the and then budget. Robert, hold on, money. let
2: me interject. Let let me interject. And I'm just going to give you props here that you were in the middle. So that you chose these expert peer reviewers. You had me on the other side, you know, trying to get this thing published because I knew this thing was a COVID killer. And I'm like, every day, this is, this is December, January of 2020, 2021. And I'm like, Robert, I, I need the peer review, get peer reviewer number four to answer my reply and dah, dah, dah. And you were totally in the middle and you were doing such a great job. and, and let's just finish the story by saying that, finally, and I appreciate that you're saying that, we did go through a rigorous peer review. Yeah, it was well. finally accepted for publication. And that's when our lives changed because it was yeah. an accepted paper. It should have been published. And then all sorts of crazy stuff well, happened. Well, my own papers really got kicked
0: out. My own papers got kicked out after yes. that, in uh, And, and yep. just for the yep. audiences uh, in allowing me to give a dig at uh frontiers in pharmacology uh so so the the paper paper's now been accepted pierre pays the bloody fee okay and upon that it triggers the posting of the abstract on a public website for frontiers and pharmacology the thing basically goes viral there, there are more views on
2: that than they have seen. From- the most views in the history of that journal, Robert. The yes. most I remember views, this, the yes. It, it of- goes, it goes <laughs> viral. And then
0: out of the blue, I get a call from the overall editor-in-chief uh, saying that we have to pull this thing uh, because some unknown person, it's got to be somebody from Merck in retrospect. Some un- unknown person has called into Frontiers in Pharmacology and made complaints about the statistical analysis, which is a little bizarre because in the abstract there was no statistical analysis. Uh, so it, you know, it it appears that it was totally duplicitous. The excuse that was provided to me, and uh, then as as if that wasn't bad enough, Frontiers in Pharmacology had basically shut down their main office, and so talking to any of those people was wicked hard and pierre had been calling into the office and getting stonewalled and uh that's i i don't recommend uh anybody do that stonewall pierre cory uh because uh he he will <laughs> rapidly escalate the issue uh and uh he did and so the editor-in-chief's you know gives me all this cock and bull story about how come this thing has to be pulled and then he pulls out uh and plus, basically, he says, Pierre wasn't nice to my uh, receptionist. <laughs> and um, at Well, that
2: well point, Robert, let's be clear. I, what I did is I told them that I suspected scientific misconduct because it had been weeks since the paper had been accepted. Okay. They refused to publish it on their website. And after weeks of watching inordinate amount of people dying across the world, I said, there's no reason why this page, this paper shouldn't be on there. I suspect scientific misconduct. And I threatened to go public, you know, me with my public megaphone, which, which we, which, and we that spooked them, Robert. that's what pissed them off. Yeah,
0: we, you know we eventually that. did.
2: And imagine why, and, I, but,
0: <laughs> um, uh, and, uh, that triggered, uh, a formal reevaluation of all of the manuscripts that we had in the pipeline and had already been accepted. Uh, and a number of those then got kicked out for spurious reasons, including yep. my own. Uh, Your, own got, point, out, yeah. Your yeah. own got kicked
2: out, Robert. No. Your own got kicked out. That's after mine.
0: Yeah, and and those papers never did get, did get published. Uh, they're still on uh, up uh, on uh, preprint servers. And uh, um, uh, the the editors that had gone through months of effort to get this thing approved uh, the, the formal editor for Frontiers in Pharmacology, because it was the big editor for the whole Frontiers series that had called and done all this.
2: Frederick she was Spencer.
0: confused. She had no idea what was going on. She basically washed her hands of it. And, uh, those of us that had created this, uh, special edition for drug repurposing resigned en masse. and, uh, and that was the and then we spoke to the new scientist about uh, our resignation letter which was printed uh and uh it is a sorry chapter and it was uh, one of the early chapters in what became kind of a chronic saga of the corruption of uh the peer reviewed journals during covid it was really a foreshadowing.
2: Let, let's Let's leave it at that see. Which is that that saga, your and our relationship with Paul and our paper and that journal and that effort. Um, that that literally was the foundation of what was to come over the next few years. That I mean, was that's, the that's when I knew that we were up against a force that was not objective, not scientific, not humanitarian. And, and I I, I just want to say that yep. all of us, and this is why we champion you because. You were really trying to lead in that space. Uh, and we've all struggled since. And that's why I'm just so glad to have you on tonight. Your your background is terrific. I think your approach is terrific. And um, we all work together and, and we're still at it. And and by the way, Robert, I just want to say, out of nowhere, I think we're winning. Oh, I think th-
1: doctors. Yeah, Where this this circles I back to Joe's, to Joe's letter. We've got Jose Iglesias on. We have a few oh, questions for Robert.
3: Long. Why don't we go to some questions? But we sure. have
1: a lot of good questions. We're not letting these people uh, away. You know, come on, you, Robert. Can you stay a, a while? Yeah. All right. Pierre, Paul, you good? Because I'm got here. So I just might to plug in my computer. And what? And what is Jose doing out there? Uh, in, in the a in question. New Jersey. All right. Okay. <laughs> Do you have a question? or shall i just go because i've got a lot of them maybe this is a rhetorical question but
0: you're dancing with uh, pharaoh's magicians and you have this nice beautiful assay on repurposed drugs that's showing that they're effective against numerous viruses and we know paradigms take a long time to change but the mrna paradigm was relatively new you know in this setting you know you have i'm sure you showed this data to very intelligent individuals. Um, and what, what was their feedback? All oh, this isn't enough evidence. We shouldn't start rolling out this kind of platform. Let's stick with
1: vaccines. So, is, a- Jose,
0: it's much more complicated than that. I, as I mentioned, I captured about half a million, uh, I'm sorry, half a billion dollars uh, from the federal government to advance drug repurposing in a variety of different forums, including the iSpy technology. And uh clinical trials, which were uh, multi-drug platform uh screening. And uh I worked with the team to build a very advanced technology for patient-oriented uh clinical research in virtual clinical trials. And uh we finally got those uh we we sought authorization to uh in a in a very sophisticated trial design, both outpatient and inpatient, to test the combination of famotidine, celecoxib, and ivermectin, because we had solid clinical data on that trio as extremely effective, including in more advanced uh, hospitalized COVID. And uh, this is the DOD funding this. Uh, the studies were being run by uh, Lidos very experienced DOD contractor with probably the most experienced uh, clinical development and regulatory team I've ever worked with. And uh, uh, we got repeatedly rejected by the FDA um, in a way that uh, the whole team was stunned. We'd never seen anything like this in the past. Uh, and remember, this is DOD seeking a uh, authorization to proceed with a clinical trial on repurposed drugs. And uh, in the end, the uh, FDA reviewer uh, just put his feet down and said that he will not allow any trial with ivermectin to proceed unless we can first demonstrate in vitro, in other words, in the test tube or in cell culture, the mechanism of action of ivermectin as an antiviral for SARS-CoV-2, at which point the DoD capitulated, okay? The DoD um, uh, rolled over, and so we proceeded at that point with clinical trials for just uh, um, famotidine plus Celecoxib, and uh, it had taken so long to get to that point that when we finally got the trials launched, Omicron came around, and suddenly there was absolutely no interest in enrolling in clinical trials because basically everybody had already had COVID of a uh relatively benign version of it, as you'll recall, when Omicron swept through. So it's it's uh what what took place here, there's there's a lot more uh backstory, uh, but uh, and, and, you know, for instance, in the i trials, we did get celecoxib and famotidine tested in a couple patients, uh, but I had had data that if you add dexamethasone to that, you'll kill people. And uh, the i group refused to acknowledge those data, a bunch of academics uh, making the decisions, and they went ahead and enrolled and treated with dex and killed patients, and that killed that trial. Uh, so. Uh, it's it's a long, ugly, complex story.
1: I have to jump in here. We've got too many good people who have a lot of questions for you. And I'm the first one I want to give you uh, Robert, is that uh, you know this is one from several viewers. Uh, and it's they're all asking about the lawsuits you have filed against some colleagues in the medical freedom fight and why those suits were filed. Can you comment on that?
0: Uh, So this is still ongoing, uh, and uh, I've been subjected to nonstop uh, defamation and character assassination now for three years. Uh, First, from corporate media, uh, New York Times, Washington Post, uh, Atlantic Monthly, Rolling Stone, Business Insider, I can go on and on and on. And then there was a conservative commentator that started making rather ugly attacks that I was deep state and not to be trusted and a CIA agent and all those kinds of things that then got amplified by another person. I don't need to go down names. And then uh, there were two individuals in particular that just uh, posted filth nonstop. Uh, and and uh, they in in particular in one of those cases one of them is Jane Ruby uh, who uh, now has been revealed to basically have have uh how shall I say it she was the primary person responsible for fraudulent clinical research that led to a two billion dollar fine of an opioid drug manufacturer um, and this only, this was largely covered up by DOJ. It appears that she was, she turned state's evidence, uh, but it was revealed in some documents from HHS. So this person, together with others, uh, who is a social media personality, basically um, posted uh, filth about me, including cause, calling me a mass murderer, uh, time and time and time again. Uh, And then another character who's a psychiatrist or psychologist, I'm not sure which, and his wife uh, had written a book uh, about uh, the COVID events, uh, attacking what they called uh, um, the uh, uh, global predators. And about the same time, a, a close colleague of mine uh um started speaking out about a theory uh, basically a competitor in a sense uh, that being Matthias Desmet and his theory of mass formation and and I had bought their other the other group books uh, and and uh, spent a lot of time with Matthias and I was very impressed with Matthias's theories and then suddenly out of the blue, Uh, these other characters started attacking me again, calling me a mass murderer and making all kinds of accusations. And many people tried to intervene with that. Uh, And I could name names, but many high profile uh, individuals within our group tried to get that person to stop these nonsensical attacks, but they just continued. And uh, I I was of the impression that the only option at that point after sending cease and desist letters to both of them, uh, was to go ahead and file a lawsuit, which we did. And that took two years and $50,000 and recently came up in a court case. Finally, we got our hearing. Uh, My lawyer had actually uh, multiply jabbed, uh, had had a debilitating stroke, uh, and so wasn't able to carry forward with the case. I had to find a new lawyer. And then uh, the two individuals being sued for defamation, repeated um, uh, um, uh, malicious defamation, uh, were able with their lawyers to get it thrown out of the state of Virginia uh, where it had been filed because uh, the jurisdiction, it turns out, if somebody is maliciously defaming you on the internet, you have to file in their state. You can't file in your state. Uh, And so it was thrown out on a jurisdictional technicality and that's still not resolved now because their lawyers are trying to uh, cause me to pay for their legal costs, even though that there's been no determination about the merits of uh, what was said. And I've had many lawyers, including Bobby Kennedy, look at the facts of the case and conclude that this does meet the criteria of malicious defamation. So now I'm stuck in a position where if I wish to carry forward, which I don't at this point with these characters that have said all this filth, uh, um, I need to file in their state. And so that'll be another two years and another $100,000. The juice isn't worth the squeeze. A lot of this is driven by the business model of social media, uh, in which people promote hate in order to get more clicks and likes. Uh, and some of it appears to be driven by just flat out envy, uh, of, of another professional that would be Matthias Desmond, who has a competing theory that's different from the one that is promoted by his fellow PhD colleague. I but hope they, I've answered your question.
1: But yeah, <laughs> I'm it certainly adds a lot to it, and but let me get a couple more in here because um, the, the, a fan, uh, uh, Ian Lynch, asks Dr. Malone, can you comment about Gert Van den Bosch's prediction on the evolution of the virus and his expectation for the imminent appearance? So, so of I've, known, I've known, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay. I've known, yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: okay. I've known Gert for a very long time. Yeah. We both used to work at Salve Pharmaceuticals. Uh, and we've interacted all the way through this covid crisis Gert uh really gets upset if I criticize him so I'm not going to I, I have no interest in in aggravating uh Dr Vondbascha who is a veterinarian by the way uh and um uh, uh uh um let's see how do I say this uh Gert has uh, repeatedly, preferred uh, initially based on uh, a particular chicken virus, Merrick's disease, that uh, this strategy of vaccinating into a pandemic was likely to result in a pathogen that would be more highly pathogenic. Uh, My position back then was in remains that the typical course when you have this kind of a situation is you end up. When, when you have a virus crossover into a new species, which is functionally what happened here. Uh, what happens is that it's typically highly pathogenic and less infectious at the start, and then it becomes more infectious and less pathogenic as it evolves. And that's, a, that's another 10 minutes talking about that, to figure out how that works. Gert uh, has preferred the theory that uh, this is going to evolve into a highly lethal uh, pathogen, which is not the normal trajectory, and he has various theories that he has floated now for two years. So this is this is not his first round at predicting uh, uh, essentially that a large fraction of the global population is going to die, uh, and uh, none of his other projections have come to or have passed. Uh, yeah. So in this case. Uh, my my sense is that I believe that it's uh, irresponsible to make uh, these catastrophic claims. There are others in the field uh, that had come out early on, I don't want to name names, uh, that uh, um, uh, the majority of people who took even one of these, uh, quote, vaccine products would be dead within two to three years. So, uh, That also hasn't panned out, but these kind of apocalyptic predictions get a lot of attention, a lot of clicks, a lot of fear, uh, and get a lot of people spun up. Now, Gert has come out with yet another prediction in which he is saying that basically a large fraction of us are all gonna die from this new variant. Uh, I'm not seeing a widespread death uh, in the uh, statistics. Matter of fact, I'm seeing the opposite. Uh, but I always have to hold back because these are forward-looking projections he's making, and he may be right uh, scientifically. I don't know; we'll know in another six months. Uh, but I'm not seeing a huge wave of mortality associated with the current variants, which is what you would expect to see if his predictions were accurate. Is that enough said about yep, it? Um, sure is, Dr. Van
1: Let me get a few more in here. Now, Kevin uh, asks, what is your opinion of Sasha Lodipova and Karen Watts' claim that the shots are a Department of Defense operation, a medical countermeasure to a bioweapon that the FDA has no control over?
0: Yeah. And uh, so Mike Eden attacked me for this recently, uh, called me basically a fraud. Uh, because I wrote the paper, as we were discussing at the beginning, supporting Joe Latipo's uh, response to Peter Marks at the FDA. Uh, So uh, Sasha is very dug in on this position, as is Yeadon. And Sasha and Yeadon both uh, spend a lot of time with Jane Ruby uh, and broadcasting on her channel. So there's a little cult there uh, that likes to take pot shots at me. Uh, and uh, um, I have uh, repeatedly respected and appreciated Sasha's uh, analysis of the DOD contracts. It's it's technically correct. And I speak as somebody who's a specialist in government contracts and has actually written in uh, one uh, multiple... Uh, contract awards under this vehicle of other transactional authorities. Uh, So I'm well familiar with the clauses that she cites. Um, And furthermore, a a, a then uh, lieutenant colonel that I had mentored during Ebola, that's another story we didn't talk about, is my role during the West African Ebola outbreak. uh, was brought in, uh, and I think he's been promoted to colonel as the project manager for the Moderna project. And he's spoken to me about the things that happened there. There's, there's no question that, uh, the contract vehicle of another transactional authority, which is only supposed to be used for proof of concept work. It's not supposed to be used for acquisition. Those are the rules. Those rules were broken. is fundamentally right that DOD was at the center of this as is envisioned in the emergency use authorization legislation. So if you spend the time to look at the EUA authorization, the DOD is anticipated to play a central role in EUA projects, and they did in this case so there's a lot of a fundamental truth in uh what she has revealed uh historically but this position that FDA has no role is false it's demonstrably false and uh there's no question that the FDA and Peter Marks has uh um Taken the position that these products are authorized, market authorized. As a matter of fact, I provided links to that market authorization. Now, the subtlety here is, that Sasha is now falling back on is that FDA basically plays second fiddle to DOD politically uh, within this current White House. And I don't I can't uh support or refute that. I don't know. Uh, what the political dynamics are right now between the Secretary of Defense, who clearly tried to jam this product through, and uh, force it onto the warfighter, uh, I don't. I don't know the nuance of the interaction between Lloyd Austin and the Secretary of HHS, because that's the that's fair enough. Fair
1: enough. Fair enough. Now we've got to get this one in because. You're talking about informed consent, and this one blows me away as, yeah, right. Um, Dakota asked the question, what do you know about these COVID shots being used on livestock for both human and pet food consumers? Will they have to label the products? Uh, Attorney Tom Rents is saying, no, we won't know what's in our food.
0: Tom Rents, another one. Okay. Boy, you, you have an interesting collection, uh, here of followers. Uh, uh, so I've known Tom Rents all the way through this, uh, worked with him when we were testifying to the, uh, um, Orthodox Jewish population in New York very early on. Uh, uh, Tom is, is not a, uh, biologist or a physician or a biotechnologist uh, he's kind of a country attorney uh, by his own admission uh running a solo practice uh in and, and he runs a blog and he says various things uh, some of which are true and some of which are are speculative uh, um. Uh, the I, it's actually my wife and I that first broke the story about the veterinary uh, use of this mRNA technology. Uh, that was I think a year and a half ago and it's it's expanded now and many people have opined, but I don't think anybody has really come up with any additional research beyond what we did. We clearly demonstrated that Merck is deploying uh, mRNA technology and custom vaccines development into swine for these large uh, hog operations. Uh, there is a uh, European case uh, where they're attempting to advance a self-replicating RNA uh, um, for a hope they hope for for uh, poultry purposes. Uh, there is certainly discussion and a lot of concern about it's being used, the technology being used in cattle. And, and I've spoken about this at length together with my uh, colleague, Brooke, Dr. Brooke Miller, uh, including to the Cattlemen's Association and to various state legislators. Uh, the, uh, in terms of use in milk cattle, Uh, that's particularly contraindicated because clearly these products are secreted in breast milk. Uh, In terms of use in beef cattle, uh, there's no compelling reason to uh, use this technology. They have the vaccines they need for the most part. And uh, all of this revolves around uh, um, intensive uh, industrial agriculture. So the only reason that I can come up with or even imagine that they're forcing this technology right now is because of the infectious disease risk associated with uh, these intensive uh, animal husbandry practices. Like if you've ever been in a chicken barn, you'll know just what I'm talking about or in a, in a pork operation in the Midwest or a feedlot for cattle. These are, are incubators for infectious disease uh, largely because of the practices. I I am trying to work with various state legislators to get in place uh, legislation that will require uh, proper labeling. And uh, the Cattlemen's Association is coming out with similar statements. Uh, And the fear is, of course, because of the MRNA tech having been uh, such a controversial area uh, that... Uh, if you're a producer uh, of of uh, animal products, uh, you really don't want the consumer to uh, have fear that yeah. these products are are in their animals and so that'll cut into your market yep. and that's the most compelling argument that plus the dairy one. So I think Tom Rance is a little ahead of his skis here, but uh it gets it gets uh, dopamine hits, and likes and follows and so i guess it serves his interest as he's trying to build a substack.
1: Last question. Last question and we're going to get all of you guys into this. Um uh, <clears throat> Laura Emerson wants to know which journalists and journals do you doctors respect as having done the best jobs alerting the public to legitimate questions about the pandemic and government ooh, ooh, medical can I go first responses? <laughs> any go ahead robert
0: bmj you yeah. disagree
2: no i i mean i wouldn't say uh, consistently robert but they're the only ones who've allowed the truth to come out at <laughs> several times yeah is and, that fair?
0: It's, a, it's a low bar
2: <laughs> yes yeah
3: I, I i would say you contrast the journals out of them the bmj is probably one you can but i must tell you and if i can say this i read epoch times because it's the i think they're the only source of you know reliable reputable information um
0: well well bless your heart paul uh, i've given up I've, I've i mean i just spent the last three days with epoch uh and Jan here on the farm uh so uh stay tuned for that uh but uh um I'm with you.
2: Yeah, hold on. I I just want to say, Robert, I don't want to give the BMJ too much credit because it's (laughs) they've been odd. I mean, they have they have exploded some truth in certain instances and done deplorable things in others. And so it's they're they're at best uneven, but they do stand out from the crowd. That's what I'm going to say.
0: Yeah, Uh, like I said, it's a low bar. Uh, Yeah, there there hasn't been a whole lot of uh um honor uh to pass around in the academic uh, peer-reviewed literature over the last 3 years
1: you basically believe they've all just been bought
2: and and I just want to point out uh the reason why like I can't champion the BMJ although they have put out really important papers that really kind of punctured the narrative is that they still have published uh one of the most horrific character assassinations of one of us, which is Flavio Cattagiani, who I think is one of the top researchers in COVID throughout the pandemic. And they they they've accused him of human ethics violations, which are completely baseless. And that still remains published today. And so yeah, I, there's nobody nobody's perfect. But yes they're very, the they're very quick to the- retract
0: the papers uh that have uh, minor irregularities in statistical analysis. Uh, that go against the uh, narrative and uh, and very very slow uh, to uh, retract uh, demonstrably false information which supports the narrative. I think that's fair. Would you agree?
2: One hundred percent. Yeah. Well, anyway, Robert. Uh,
1: thank you, thank Robert. You. Thank, you thank you for you. coming. Uh, for being with us and sharing your knowledge, which is incredible. And Paul and Pierre. Thank you for giving us all this time. Uh, we have, I have a few announcements. And, and you know, I the just make
2: one statement, sure. Betsy, is that yeah, when you listen to Robert and you listen to his deep knowledge and experience, like so much of this stuff is nuanced, and most people see superficial knowledge and make judgments. And it's it's just not fair. I, I think you have to know a man, you have to know his oh. career, what he's done. No, none uh, of this is
0: fair. With
1: Robert, this is none of it's this, fair. This is this is psyops, Robert, it doesn't all fit. What we have exactly.
0: is, is advanced propaganda technology. Um, and uh this is uh, one of the things we were just uh going over with Epic is uh so CISA. Uh, the kind of coordinating agency within the federal government for all the psyops that's been going on and the censorship and propaganda and defamation that many of us have experienced uh, lists a series of techniques uh, that they they assert people need to watch out for. Every single one of them, they're guilty of doing. Uh, we yep. We have been subjected to the most uh intense globally coordinated propaganda campaign in the history of uh modern uh technology. And uh um every single one of us here, uh I guess uh Betsy perhaps accepted, uh, mm. has, has been subjected to coordinated uh efforts to delegitimize us and uh to uh um, defame and censor us. And a lot of these uh, controversies that have been cited involve people who appear to be paid. Uh, these these, you know, you can't you can't uh, make sense out of uh, somebody, I have thousands of pages of defamation uh, from some of these characters uh, that have gone on and been attacking me consistently and fraudulently for three years. Uh, that, that smacks of either pharma or government uh, psyops that's going on.
3: Yep. 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 Thank you, Robert. There,
1: thank, yes, you thank you so you,
2: Robert. much. You know
1: we're behind thank you, you all. One hundred percent. Thanks, guys. Folks, we got a couple of some good announcements, a few little things to tell you. Um, <clears throat> okay. And one of the things that you know, of course, is that uh, many of these topics are going to be covered in our upcoming educational conference, Healthcare Revolution, Restoring the Doctor-Patient Relationship. That's just 30 days away from now in Phoenix, Arizona. Early bird prices are available just a couple more days, and we are told that hotels are starting to sell out, so make sure you register by January 5th to enjoy discounted rates and get a room close by. You can learn more about the speakers and topics. Get all the details at flccc.net forward slash conference. Now, something special, something special coming up at the conference. we have the lovely folks who bring you your sto- bring your stories to life in my story and for the record, the testimonials. They're going to be hosting a booth at the conference. All you, you know, you all have a story, and we'd love to hear it. So just stop by in person, say hi, put your story on the record, and we look forward to meeting you all. Now, Dr. Merrick, you know, was. Uh, our own Dr. Merrick sat down with Jan Jekalik, a host of American thought leaders, to discuss the simple ways we can all work to prevent cancer. This new episode premiered yesterday. It can be viewed at the link on the screen. And you can also read and download Dr. Merrick's monograph, Cancer Care, The Role of Repurposed Drugs and Metabolic Interventions in Treating Cancer at genie.us forward slash FLCCC hyphen cancer hyphen care. Very good material in there. Very good. And with that, let's bring out our nurses. We have Christina and Samantha. They've been working behind the scenes all night answering questions. How'd it go? Happy New Year, by the way. Happy New Year, Betsy. Well, we had a lot of questions tonight. We answered 100, Betsy, 100 out of 150. Pretty good, pretty good. We, We worked our little fingers to the bone. (laughs) <laughs> thank you so much thank you for being here thank you for doing it and uh as always the, you're you know you're just great you got all kinds of good things that you're doing for online with uh, selling uh, well you've got the products you know, where what are you wearing tonight you, let me see any oh uh, where... uh, wait hold on Betsy I think I knew... oh yeah okay You've got the one of the bomber jacket. The bomber jacket. The bomber jacket. Yes. That's the everyone should get their bomber jacket yes, from the ALT yes, store. Yes, the one who brings us all of these fun things. So, anyway, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for that. And you also do great little, what do you call them now? You know, these nice little guides that tell people how to do stuff that's useful and helpful. So, all of this is online. It's on our website. So, thank you. Thank you. And with that, let's just go on. I have to thank a few other people. Let's just thank you, all of you out there for your incredible support that you've given us over the past a couple years, three years, and for helping us share the light. Here's an update from our team. Thanks to the incredible generosity of our community of donors, we met our matches and raised over $200,000 during last month's campaign. Wow, you know, it's, it's just incredible what you do. And it's a wonderful way to end that year and a great way to begin 2024. We will see you back here next week. But before you go, before you go, we have just a few seconds to show you, of course, a little promo about the upcoming um, conference. But then be sure to listen to Christy's story. She tells what the FLCCC COVID treatment protocols meant to her and to her husband, and she tells it very well. Enjoy, and we'll see you next week.
2: The goal of all of this is just central to what we do. I mean, we're trying to help patients.
1: This is the battle to
0: restore medicine to its original purpose. This is the population of people that is creating a functional healthcare system parallel to the
1: healthcare system that has failed us.
4: In February 2021, my husband and I were wintering in Texas. One day, he became very fatigued and just didn't feel himself. He slept a lot, but had no other symptoms of anything. After a couple days of this, I became concerned that he may have COVID, so I started him on the FLCCC protocol, including ivermectin. We had ivermectin on hand because I had ordered online from overseas off the list of doctors that the FLCCC had posted on their website. We take several of the protocol supplements on a regular basis, so I just upped everything to the FLCCC recommendations. Shortly after, I started to feel tired and not myself, although I was able to carry on with day-to-day life. The tiredness for me only lasted about three days, so I never bothered taking ivermectin myself. But then a few days later, I lost my sense of taste and smell. At this point, I assumed that we both had had COVID, I was really only tired for about three days and then got active again and felt back to normal except for my loss of taste and smell. But these senses came back after one week. Within a day of the protocols my husband was feeling better and within a few days he was back to normal. My taste and smell returned after one week but then out of nowhere I lost my hearing in my right ear. I thought it might be a wax buildup so after a month I decided to go to a walk-in clinic in Texas. The doctor said I had no wax in my ear. He looked at me sideways with one eyebrow raised and asked me if I had had any recent colds. He suggested I try a decongestant but it didn't help. Then it struck me. Maybe this is related to the slight bit of COVID that I believe I had. I decided to give ivermectin a try. The first two days there was no change but then late on the third day I started to feel a slight bit of crackling in my ear. By the afternoon on day four, I was starting to hear again. By day five, my hearing was fully back. Many will say this was a coincidence, but I don't believe it was. For one full month, I was completely deaf in that ear. And by day three on ivermectin, my hearing was coming back. I can never thank the FLCCC enough for everything they've done for all of us. My gratitude is beyond measure.
3: Your stories are powerful. They change hearts and minds. Share yours today. Send it in to my story at flccc.net.